Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Barbara Weber. She's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Tango Therapeutics. Ever hear the saying, it takes two to tango? That's where this startup draws its inspiration. It's seeking to discover and develop synthetic lethal cancer drugs. What does that mean? These are intended to target two molecular vulnerabilities of a cancer cell, not just one, like the first wave of targeted therapeutics did 20 years ago. The concept of synthetic lethal is a hot one today in cancer biology. Venture capital has been flowing for a couple years now to companies like Tango, Repair Therapeutics, Idea Biosciences, I hope I pronounced that one right, and Cytere Therapeutics, all looking to stake their claims. Tango, like many startups, is seizing upon a confluence of advances in technology that makes synthetic lethal cancer drug discovery more practical now than ever before. There's fast, cheap DNA sequencing, fast, cheap CRISPR gene editing, and improving bioinformatics that help narrow down the possibilities. This company, founded in 2014, is still at quite an early stage. It has no drug candidates in the clinic, and it will be years before it gets there, if ever. I've written about Tango before and invited Barbara Weber to speak about Tango last spring at my Boston Cancer Summit, the charity fundraising event for my Everest Climb to Fight Cancer campaign to support research at the Fred Hutch. Curious to hear more, I made a note to invite her on the podcast after getting home from the mountain. And it so happens, she's been busy. Today, Tango is announcing its first big partnership. Gilead Sciences is paying $50 million up front to get the option to license five new targets that come from Tango's discovery platform. Tango retains 100% ownership of its lead programs. It's not saying what they are. But Tango didn't have to mortgage away its future just to get cash to keep the doors open a few more years. And this deal is yet another sign of the times, in that startups with promising technology in today's boom are bargaining from a position of strength, and the big wealthy companies are under pressure to fill up their pipelines with things that might excite their investors. As for Weber personally, she has the kind of resume you'd expect as someone serving as the Dean of Genetics at some distinguished university. She's an MD by training, did a residency at Yale, fellowship at Dana-Farber, became a professor of genetics at Michigan and Penn. Then she went to the other side of the fence in R&D leadership roles at Big Pharma stalwarts GSK and Novartis. She ended up in the orbit of Third Rock Ventures, the Boston and San Francisco-based venture firm that starts companies focused on emerging areas of biology. She worked for a while on another Third Rock startup, the personalized neoantigen cancer vaccine developer Neon Therapeutics, before being drawn in to run Tango full-time. Hearing her describe her career arc, Barbara sounds like she's gotten herself into the right kind of situation where she and her team can execute on something she's long wanted to do. Okay, now before we dive in, a few plugs. Life Science Cares is an exciting new philanthropic outlet for biotech professionals. I've personally contributed because I believe in its mission of fostering community volunteerism in biotech. Never heard of it? Here's the gist. It's a collective effort of the life science industry to end poverty in the greater Boston area. Now working with more than 150 companies, Life Science Cares harnesses the industry's human 
and financial resources to support service organizations that are doing the best work in the areas of basic human survival, education, and economic sustainability. To learn more about how your organization can become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares.org. And if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Lastly, are you planning a conference, a team building event, or a leadership retreat? I've developed a presentation based on my successful Mount Everest summit expedition. My Everest talks feature gorgeous photos from the world's highest mountain, along with lessons on leadership, teamwork, and what it takes to overcome adversity to achieve the big goals in life. Interested? Ask me about an Everest talk at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Now join me and Barbara Weber for the long run. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Luke. So I'm really excited to have you on the show here today, Barbara. Um, You were one of the featured speakers at the Boston Cancer Summit event that I organized in the spring uh, to raise money for the the Everest uh, Climb to Fight Cancer at Fred Hutch. I want to thank you for that. Um, your story is still, uh, it's early, and uh, I want to, I'm curious to see how it's developed over the past, say, six months. Um, so, but before we get into some of the, the meaty stuff that you're doing today, uh, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, where, where do you come from? Where were you born and raised? Sure. Oh, wow. That's way back. So I actually was born in Palo Alto. Uh, grew up mostly on the West Coast, uh, but then and, and went to college and medical school at the University of Washington in Seattle, but moved uh, back east to do my internship and residency at Yale and then my medical oncology training at Dana-Farber and have been on the, on the East Coast pretty much since then. Okay, well, let's go back just a bit here. Uh, you say born and raised in Palo Alto near Stanford. What did your mom and dad do for a living? Oh, my father was a stockbroker, but I think actually my uh, my family ended up being out there because my grandfather was a physicist and was at Stanford, and that's how that's how my parents ended up there. So, what about your mom? Uh, my mom didn't really work when I was growing up, but she was a dietitian and went back to work after we were uh, out of the house. Yeah. So. And uh, siblings? I have two sisters, one of whom is. Um, uh, a, a DVM PhD, so she's a veterinarian who's an academic veterinarian at Washington State in in Washington and they, at the vet school there, and another sister who lives in Houston, Texas. I'm based in Seattle, so I'm familiar with Washington State University, Pullman, Eastern Washington. It's a very good veterinary school, by the way. Okay, so were you the oldest of the I am, three? Yeah. So you did allude to some of these uh, these stops at illustrious institutions that that came later. Um, but how did you uh, like even as a kid, how, how did you get interested in science or medicine? Ah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. And I think it's it's funny that you asked me about my mother being a dietitian, because I think in some ways that was the link. Um, and I started I also really enjoyed books as a kid about um, people, healthcare providers, I guess we'd call them now, who did important things for people. So, you know, kids with cerebral palsy who physical therapists changed their life, things like that. I loved to read those books when I was a kid. And so I started thinking about physical therapist uh, training and, and school. And then I, you know, the more I sort of got interested in science and 
maybe even at that point, sort of understood my own personality. I thought, you know, I really need to be a doctor and be a, go to medical school. And so that's uh, that was the original link. But I also think that I've always been interested in genetics and, and what genetics could mean um, for thinking about both science and, and, and taking care of patients. So that, that was also another piece of it for me from the very early parts of my thinking about what I would do with my life. Now, we're, we're in Palo Alto. Were you in public schools? I did, yeah, I went to public school. Okay, so I, I, remember, I would imagine, old, I mean, so a, lot of, a lot of... was very different. Palo Alto was not like what Palo Alto <laughs> is like now. Well, I didn't want to be rude and, and try to date you here. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, so uh, it, it is near Stanford and this whole milieu. I would imagine there's a lot of, you know, smart people around. You know, kids of professors going to your school. Uh, was it a, a competitive kind of place? Um, well, it was. Now, I've sort of, uh, I've abbreviated some of my my history, right? If you want to really get down to the details, actually, my father decided that he could make his fortune being a stockbroker in Alaska while the pipeline was being built. So I actually went to high school in Anchorage, Alaska. And that's, that is in some part how I ended up at the University of Washington Medical School through the WAMI program that you're probably familiar with. Oh, yes. Okay. So for those who are not, this is the... WWAMI, uh, it's, or no, 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 not W, it's Washington, uh, it's the northern, northwestern states, northwestern states that only have one medical school, at that time, University of Washington, to serve, I think, five states. Yeah, when I went, it was four, it was Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho, uh, and I think there's another one that's been added. Well, I think they added Wyoming, that's the yes, other W. Yes, I think that's the other W, that's right. <laughs> okay, so you, you, you're, you're growing up and going to school in Alaska and then coming to University of Washington. Okay, go Huskies. Uh, so what, what did you study there? I was a chemistry major. So how does chemistry, how did that captivate your interest in, and lead toward oh a medical school Luke, career? Sending me so far back. Uh, you know, it's, very, it's interesting how individual people, I haven't even thought of this for a while, but individual people can influence you. I had a really what I thought was a really great chemistry teacher in high school. And I just thought it was very interesting. So uh, that's, you know, I decided I would be a chemistry major and I liked it um, and stuck with it. So I took the pre-med courses along with it, but I, I really enjoyed the, the chemistry piece of it, organic chemistry, physical chemistry. That's really interesting. And so you, I, I actually, this is a theme of mine. I, I'm curious about uh, people who um, inspire others and encourage people. And everybody has somebody like that. And for you, it was that chemistry teacher. And that's, that's great. It was also, there's another person, again, you may know him, or I think his son now, George Stamatinopoulos, who was my, the genetics teach professor, my first year of medical school, uh, that, that also got me really interested in medical genetics. So there are, you know, I can, at each point in my career, I can tell you, you know, that there was often one or two people who really inspired me and, and sort of by being who they were and how they influenced me, very important in how in decisions I made subsequently. Well, I don't want to belabor it too much on the University of Washington, but uh, in those days, I mean, in genetics, it was already emerging as a powerhouse. Arnold Matulski was there. George Stam, as you mentioned, his son, John Stamatoyanopoulos, is still here, and he's running an institute that's supported by GSK. There's a lot of great genetics history here, and, and it sounds I like you caught the bug. I when I just showed up for uh, you know the medical genetics seminar, and in fact, I guess it was my second year of medical school, I was just blown away by the sky and thought, this is amazing, right? Um, 
And of course, it turns out then all of that was also around. Okay, but then you go on and you become a doctor. And I, I'm looking at your career arc, and this is really quite... It's like you've been to so many illustrious institutions. You did an internal medicine residency at Yale, oncology fellowship at Dana-Farber, later a professor of medicine at Penn, uh, stop in, at GSK in Novartis. I mean, wow. I mean, <laughs> you've really done a lot. Um, could you just talk like at a couple of those important turning points? Uh, uh, which ones were important to lead you to where you are today? Well, I, you know, that's a really interesting question, and I think they were all really important, at least in the sense of the fact that I spent a long time in academics, I had a significant history in big pharma, and uh, and now I'm in biotech. And I think that, at least for me, I'm able to do what I do now, my job as the CEO of Tango, in, a, in for, me, for me, what feels like a much better way than if I hadn't had all those different experiences. You know, more often people come with one of those experiences, or sometimes two, but usually not all three. So for me, they've all been equally influential, and I've had some really amazing experiences uh, and learned tremendously from each one of them. I could, I could pick out maybe one or two things from each, but I have to say that I feel so fortunate to have had all those different experiences. In terms of what you're doing today with synthetic lethal cancer drug discovery, I mean, it's clearly the cancer part and the genetics part are both very relevant in your background to what you're doing today. So maybe can you just tell me a little bit about how, how what did you gain during that? It sounds like oncology fellowship at Dana-Farber would have been one kind of formative experience. What, what did you learn there? I would say it was, it was actually at the next step, which is when I um, went to the University of Michigan, which was my first faculty appointment after being a fellow at Dana-Farber. And it was an amazing time there at at Michigan, you know, um, Jeff Lydon was there and Craig Thompson was there, David Ginsburg. There was just, you know, Francis Collins. There was this amazing group of people that had been assembled at the University of Michigan in the School of Medicine. And uh, it was really there that I got introduced to Francis Collins and started working with him on the isolation of BRCA1. That was a major turning point for me, and it actually really was the beginning of thinking about what I do now, because we thought at the time, oh, this will be great, we'll clone this gene, and we'll, then we'll be able to actually develop a drug, or somebody will be able to develop a drug that you know addresses these breast cancers in these women and maybe prevents it. Um, but of course, it's a tumor suppressor gene, and it's, it's gone, or it's inactivated, and so therefore, by definition, not druggable. And fast forward now, you know, 15 years later or 20 years later, that CRISPR as a technology now enables us to use that genetics concept of synthetic lethality to find ways to target tumors that have specific tumor suppressor gene loss. So going really all the way back to the University of Michigan and my role in the BRCA1 and 2 projects, which were heavily influenced, you know, by my working with Francis, that, that probably more than anything drove what I what I've been really focused on since then. This would have been the '80s, and and a whole world was opening up with you know, oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes, uh, even before we had the genome. Right. So Mary Claire King identified the locus for BRCA1 on chromosome 17, I think, in 1989, uh, and that's when this whole piece started. Okay, now we're going to get real quick into the synthetic lethality concept. But uh, before that, uh, you did this. You did a couple stops in big pharma uh, at GSK and Novartis. 
what was sort of the the thing that drew you there? Well, what drew me from academics into big pharma in the first place was that, you know, I'd been working on BRCA1 and 2 for a number of years, had really done a lot with characterizing mutations and and built a big translational um, program there for women and their families and had done really a lot of work in that space, uh, as well as the, the cloning with uh, of BRCA2 with the Myriad group. But after some time, you know, it just became, it was sort of weighing on me that we really weren't being able to do anything about it except talk to people about their risk. And at the same time, um, Novartis had developed uh, Gleevec. Brian Drucker presented the data from Gleevec at that ACR that year. And then after that, I think it was, um, you know, a number of people, but let's say David Tuvison and George Dimitri, who proposed that Gleevec should work in KIT, uh, in, in GIST, because it hits KIT. These things were all happening for me at the same time. And I said, you know, I am kind of um, tired of having the output of what I do be papers on my CV. I really want to think about how I could stop having the just be the first paragraph of every grant, say this might be important for patients in this way, to really learning how to and being part of making drugs that really were directly important for patients. And that's what that's actually what drove me. I had a big grant from GSK and I was working with them uh, on how to use um, array CGH at that time, another genomic platform to say, you know, how do you find new cancer targets? And they offered me a job and I said, yeah, sure. Okay, but I mean, at this time, you're a you're a tenured professor, right? Yeah, it was very shocking to a lot of people. You know, I had you know lots of grants, and I was a full professor and a big group. And uh, I said, yeah, no, this is what I want to do. This is I want to take everything I've done now and really start to think how we could turn it into something that matters for patients. Um, and when I went to GSK, I really learned a lot about how to how to make drugs. But I remained sort of frustrated about how genetically targeted drugs were being developed, people were still um, developing as them as if they were chemotherapy. Um, and I had, because of my genetics background, I really had this, you know, idea in my mind that we could dramatically change how cancer targeted drug development was being done by selecting patients correctly from the very beginning of phase one. And at the time, now it was 2009, David Epstein was still the head of Novartis Oncology and he offered me a job to come run translational medicine for Novartis Oncology, which is the whole middle part of the pipeline. So everything from candidate selection of the drugs in the oncology portfolio up to phase three. And, you know, basically carte blanche to change things the way I thought they needed to be done. And that's why I went to Novartis. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, he's another person in my life who was just extremely influential to me. Um, but it was the Novartis portfolio um, and resources and his and then and then Hervé Opino's leadership that allowed us then to really change how we were doing clinical trials and move from all comers in phase one, thinking that you could slowly narrow that down over phase two and phase three to what we really did, which was, first of all, eliminate phase two altogether and select patients genetically from the very first patient on the first dose. <clears throat> and I actually have the data from this, what that did was take the time from first patient dosed to clinical POC from a median at that time of four and a half years to seven months. 
Yeah, yeah. This is and this is these are the years when uh, sequencing is getting a lot cheaper and better and faster. So that enables some of this to happen. What years were you uh, were you there at Novartis? I was there from two thousand nine until two thousand fifteen. And during that time, I think for okay. me, a real highlight for me was that using that approach, we developed seritinib, which is Novartis's ALK inhibitor. We selected patients for ALK translocation from the very first dose. We saw our first response in the second patient who was treated, uh, who was a 24-year-old college student. And um, we registered that drug in, you know, with the help, obviously, of Alessandro Riva and the full development organization who did the heavy lifting on the registration within three years of the first patient dosed. This is part of the, the promise of, I guess, what we call precision medicine now, in that it's, it, it is supposed to, uh, for the pharmaceutical industry, deliver this, this promise of really utmost importance to, to reduce the time, the risk of failure, the cost, everything, so to make things more efficient in R&D. And it absolutely does that. When you have the right target and you select patients from the beginning, it absolutely does it. You can go back and look at, you know, what Peter Leibowitz did with the MEK and the RAF inhibitor and the combination at GSK. You can look at seritinib. You can look at the alpha-selective PI3 kinase inhibitor Novartis just registered. You can go all the way back to the first company that did it, which was Genentech with Herceptin. Um, and it, and it, it, it really, it works every single time when you've got the right target and you select the patients. Okay, so 2015, you come to another juncture. Uh, now, I want to make sure I have my dates right. Was this around the time when the PARP story kind of cracked open this whole aha moment for synthetic lethal cancer drugs? Well, from my perspective, the PARP story cracked it open way, way before that, because Alan Ashworth, who's a friend and longtime collaborator of mine, is the person who discovered the BRCA1-2 PARP interaction. That was in 2005. Um, and Alan's a founder of Tango. I think it was back then where Alan started working with a company called Kudos that was ultimately bought by AZ with a drug that ultimately became Olaparib that became absolutely clear this is how to think about tumor suppressor genes. And actually, with a little bit of history, Alan and I, way back in 2005, wrote up a small business plan and pitched it to a VC company uh, that I won't name, but it wasn't Third Rock. They didn't exist then and suggested that we could build a company based on synthetic lethal screening and find targets for uh, tumor suppressor genes. And the feedback we got was absolutely right. You can't do this. It's not technically possible. And that is true because back then we didn't know it quite yet, but SHRNA approaches just give you way too many false positives for that approach to be done at scale. CRISPR is what changed that. And so literally, I, you know, the, what we do at Tango is not that different to what Alan and I proposed literally in 2005, but we can actually make it work technically now because of being able to use CRISPR libraries. Well, and this is an important point I want to ask you about in a minute, but um, I guess for those who are not that familiar with even the concept of synthetic lethal, uh, basically you're looking for two vulnerabilities in the tumor genetically, not just one. Uh, and can you, can you elaborate? Sure. The, the concept was actually discovered a long time ago in the, in the 1930s by fruit fly geneticists. And what they recognized was that there were flies that had certain phenotypes, which this was, I mean, it's unbelievable to talk about this. It was even before DNA was really discovered. 
and they didn't know that they were DNA mutations. But these flies had phenotypes that you could see under the microscope, and they knew that, for example, flies with one eye phenotype, like glass eyes, and another eye phenotype called bar eyes, those two flies by themselves were fine and could reproduce. But if you mated those two flies, all the offspring were dead. But there were other combinations like wingless flies and glass eye flies that when you mated them, nothing happened. So that's the concept of synthetic lethality. There are pairs of mutations that can be tolerated together, and there are other pairs of mutations that can't be tolerated together. But all of them are fine by themselves. And that's actually exactly the concept that we use in cancer to say, the cancer has one mutation. How do we find the drug target that is, quote, synthetic lethal with that drug target that the cancer can't tolerate, but the normal cells can tolerate because they don't have that mutation. That's exactly PARP, right? So normal cells, not much happens when you treat them with a PARP inhibitor. Cells with the BRCA1 mutation or loss of BRCA1 will die when you give them a PARP inhibitor because they have now not just the PARP and not just the BRCA1, but they have them together. Now, in the mid two thousands, you you mentioned uh, you you had this uh, the bug for an idea of a synthetic lethal company, uh, but at that same time, the PARP inhibitor drug candidates were moving along. People were excited about them just uh, because of PARP. I don't think they were really thinking about the BRCA one two connection at that time. But a lot of those drugs failed. Was this a matter of sort of looking through the subset analyses and finding, uh, you know, the drug is failing in the all-comers population, but boy, it looks really encouraging in this subpopulation with BRCA1-2 mutations. Yeah, that that could have worked, but it, it actually isn't what happened. Alan actually hypothesized that BRCA1 or 2 and PARP should be synthetic lethal. And it goes back again to a basic genetic concept, which is that these synthetic lethal pairs are often two different genes in the same functional pathway. So BRCA1 is a DNA damage repair pathway gene. PARP is a DNA damage repair pathway gene. And Alan thought, you know, let's see if any of these drugs that are out there that are available that are DNA damage repair pathway inhibitors are synthetic lethal with BRCA1. And he got the PARP inhibitor from Kudos and he showed that and published that in a, I think it's a Nature paper from 2005. After that, AZ got interested in it and they bought it for that purpose. But, you know, as some, 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 sometimes can happen, there was a very circuitous kind of route to getting there and getting everybody behind selecting patients and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yes, you're right. The drugs were being developed as sort of non-specific chemotherapeutic agents, if you will, although the target was known uh, but the synthetic lethal effect for Olaparib was known from 2005. I see. But but around, you know, just to get these timelines right again, around, you know, that 2015 timeframe, a number of things are happening. CRISPR, which you alluded to. Uh, but there was also uh, one of these late stage clinical readouts. I don't know if it was with AZ or there were other companies like Clovis and Tesaro that, are, that were also zeroing in on this PARP-BRCA-1-2 connection. And it suddenly became validated clinically. And it was a happy coincidence for us because we actually already had the Series A funding for Tango. And we were getting ready for the public launch a few months later, which was in March of 2016. And it happened almost coincident with that first study or that study that I think was Naraparib, now that I think about it, that was the really dramatic effect in ovarian cancer. 
after it sounds like a, a really interesting, good run at Novartis, six years, uh, lots of resources, lots of cancer drugs in the pipeline. You decide to uh, to get into the startup world. You joined Third Rock. What what was your uh, what were your what was your mandate then? Well, you know, like all things, there's a story, which is that when I was when I went to Novartis, the other thing that happened was that Francis introduced me to Bob Tepper. So now it's like late 2008, and they're starting Third Rock. And I met with Bob, and he said, you know, we're just starting this new company, Third Rock, and we're going to do this cool stuff and creating companies, and we're starting these two new companies, and they both need a CSO. Uh, would you be interested in either one of them? One of them is going to be called Agios, and the other one's going to be called Constellation. So at the same time, I was being offered the Novartis job, and I said, I'm condensing a lot, of course, here, but I said to Bob and Mark Levin that I really thought what they were doing was so cool. They were you know, going after important problems with the best people in the world, and they were putting a lot of resources behind it. I was going to take the job at Novartis because it was sort of, as I was explaining to you, minute ago, it, you know, it felt it, it was what I really wanted to do then. And it was the right place to do it. And I said, you know, these companies are far from the clinic, but I want my next job to be at Third Rock. That was in 2008. Um, and I stayed in contact always with them. In fact, uh, I'm a huge foundation medicine fan for probably obvious reasons. And it was Mike Pellini and I that did the Novartis foundation medicine deal, which was the first pharma deal for foundation so, you know, it was really through those connections that when I, you know, when it was clear it was time for me to leave Novartis, I, I, I called Bob and said, you know, what do you think? And he said, yeah, come on over. And to be honest, I didn't know anything about company building or venture capital, but, you know, I knew what I wanted to do and they felt like the people I wanted to do it with. And it was, it was a great choice and it was a great opportunity. Well, it is a, a small world there in Boston. You mentioned Foundation Medicine. That's part of the Third Rock portfolio. Uh, you know, several Third Rock members on their board, et cetera. You already know these people. So you had a pretty good sense of who they are and what they do. <clears throat> but maybe not company Maybe not company building, like what that was all about. <laughs> that was new. Uh, so, but you went in, uh, was it like a venture partner or entrepreneur in residence kind of role where you sort of look around for a while to see what it is that you will uh, devote yourself to full time? Yeah, I started out as an entrepreneur in residence. And after a year, they said, you know, and I said, yeah, I'd love to be a venture partner. I'm, I, I want to do this. This is great. I'm, you know, this is really fun. Um, and right in my wheelhouse and going back to what we talked about at the beginning, having the academic background and the drug development experience was kind of perfect for that. And I'm a, you know, I'm sort of an organizer, builder kind of person anyway. So I, uh, right, literally within a month after I joined, Bob Tepper and Carrie Pfeffer were launching Neon. Um, and they, Carrie is the interim CEO and Bob is the uh, interim head of R&D. And they said, would you be willing to be the interim CMO? And I said, you know, I don't really know anything about cancer vaccines or immunology. Um, but wow, what a chance to see how you launch a company, right? So I was the interim CMO for Neon from the Series A to the Series B when we brought in Hugh O'Dowd and, and um, Richard Gaynor in those positions. And I also worked closely with Alexis building what became Relay from when it started as an idea up until its launch. And so in the background now, I'm getting started with Tango, which I built myself at, at 
third walk with Alexis's help and then Carrie coming in with me as an interim sea level person here when we launched it. But even when we launched Tango, I was saying, I don't want to be a CEO. I want to stay as a venture partner at Third Rock. I'm going to replace myself uh, as the CEO of Tango. I'm going to go back to Third Rock and make some more companies. But what happened is that, you know, this has been my baby since like 2005. I've been thinking about it. The team, because I started this at Third Rock myself, is all people that I brought in. The science was just turning out to be just as amazing as I hoped that it would be. And every time Alexis said to me, you know, you've got to start interviewing CEO candidates, I'd say like, yeah, maybe next month I'll do that because I don't really want to give this job to somebody else. <laughs> so, so finally last summer, you know, they, Alexis said, look, you got to hire a new CEO or you got to take the job yourself. And so I said, okay, great, I'm doing it. So now I'm a very part-time venture partner at Third Rock and the permanent full-time CEO of Tango. And it has been a great choice for me. Life Science Cares is an exciting new philanthropic outlet for biotech professionals. Its mission is to end poverty in the greater Boston area. To learn more about how your organization can become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares.org. And is your company interested in raising its profile? Cut through the noise. Reach biotech leaders who listen to this show and give it their undivided attention. This is an opportunity to seize. Sponsor the Long Run Podcast. Ping me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. So Tango, the, you know, and the name is one of these that's quite instantly appropriate, right? It takes two to tango. <laughs> it, ta- it takes two genes to really neutralize the, the protein, the, the, the tumor. Um, okay. Now, but you mentioned CRISPR. I want to come back to this because this is an important point. Um, I think a lot of people, when they, when they hear that term, they think of CRISPR uh, drug companies, you know, companies that are fundamentally using that to, you know, clip out some disease gene or, or maybe knock in something. But actually CRISPR is being used much, much more widely across drug discovery platforms for lots of different purposes, you know, at companies that don't really advertise themselves as CRISPR companies. Um, so how, how do you use it to enable your discovery engine? Yeah, and exactly what you said is, is right. We use it for research purposes, not for therapeutic purposes. That's really the important distinction, right? So Editas, Intellia, CRISPR, those companies are actually proposing to treat patients with CRISPR as a drug. We use CRISPR as a way of finding novel cancer targets and then we use sort of more conventional small molecule drug discovery approaches to make the molecules that the patients would be treated with. So for us, CRISPR is a tool. It's a genome scale tool that we can use to find the targets. And there are a lot of companies that are trying to put CRISPR to work in drug discovery. I mean, even at my event uh, in the spring, we had uh, KSQ Therapeutics, uh, David Meeker, who you know. Um, and and the, the story is similar, that uh, you, you can screen combinations at high throughput. Yep. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? What kind of questions can you ask and what kind of speed and volume are we talking about? Sure. So, you know... Going back to what Tango is about, it's about finding 
pairs of mutation drug combinations or even drug-drug combinations in specific genetic contexts that will kill cancer cells and not harm normal cells. We also feel strongly, and the data support this, I think, that these synthetic lethal pairs are context-dependent. So, for example, something that's a synthetic lethal pair in gastric cancer may not be the same synthetic lethal pair in lung cancer. So what we do is two things. One, we, we, we identify a patient population that we want to address, that high unmet need. Now, you could argue, and I think it's right, that essentially almost all cancer is still a very high unmet need. But let's say patients now who, who don't have good targeted therapies and are not really responding to immunotherapy. So all, let's say all of GI cancers, right, gastric cancer, colon cancer, all of those cancers are still places where the therapeutic options are, are, are pretty uh, limited. Then we say, okay, what do the genetics of those cancers look like and subdivide them? So uh, there's a subset of gastric cancer that have ARID1A mutations or ARID1A gene function loss. That's maybe 30 or 40 percent of gastric cancer. So then we'll take, we'll look for say five or six or seven gastric cancer cell lines that have ARID1A loss and a matched number that don't. That's what we start with. What we use to, to look for targets then is a druggable genome CRISPR library. It's about 5,000 genes that by making a CRISPR library out of them and infecting in pools those cells of the five or six or 10 different cell lines, we can tell through sequencing techniques which of those 5,000 genes are potential synthetic lethal pairs with ARID1A in that context. And those pairs, that other half of that pair in those experiments, are the potential drug targets. Then we go through a series you know, of, of filters of saying which of those are, the, are potentially the most promising drug targets. We do standard you know, biologic validation for those targets, and then we would take that target into drug discovery. You use that phrase, context-dependent, and I think that's an important one uh, because I, I think people have this idea that okay, maybe you've got gene mutation A here and gene mutation B here, and the organ of origin may not be that important, but what's important is the mutational status of, of A and B. But what I think I'm hearing you say is that actually that context is important. So maybe gene A and B are misregulated somehow or, or mutated in, in gastric cancer, uh, but it won't just be translatable automatically to other cancers that look like that molecularly in, in, other, in other tissues. That's exactly right. And, and there's examples of that already, right? Take, for example, RAF inhibitors. Work really well in RAF mutant melanoma, BRAF mutant melanoma. Really don't work at all in BRAF mutant colon cancer. The difference is probably both the lineage program, which has you know, effects that we are, we, we are just beginning to understand, and also that the mutation spectrum is different. The other commonly mutated genes in melanoma and in colon cancer are very different. So you, you end up with that exact setting. BRAF inhibitors are context-dependent in their efficacy, right? It's exactly the same thing. And I think it's also important, I'm glad you brought this up because it's, to me, it's just fundamentally important, is that with the Broad Project Achilles and Novartis Project Drive, the idea behind them, which made sense, you know, at the time, and, and still they're very valuable data sets, is let's assemble, let's, let's talk about the Broad Project Achilles. Let's assemble 
a thousand cancer cell lines and a whole exome CRISPR library, and let's find all the synthetic lethal interactions that exist, and let's um, then we'll know what all the drug targets are. And in fact, there's only been a couple that have come out of that. Clearly, the reason is this: so that if you, it's exactly this. If you look across all a thousand cell lines, you can't find, you find very very few things that are synthetic lethal across the whole line. If you go down into a subset of very well-defined, say, now I'll pick out another ARID1A subset of ovarian cancer patients, now you can find, we published this last year, we showed this last year at a poster in um, ACR, that in ovarian cancer, Eglin-1 is an ARID1A synthetic lethal pair, but it's not true in other ARID1A mutations and other histologies. So we know this is true, and, and it really is about finding, uh, identifying those subcontexts of patients where you can identify uh, a, a synthetic lethal target pair that are very effective. So I guess tissue of origin does still matter. <laughs> that higher level bi biological context does still matter. It does. And, you know, I didn't think it would either. When I was at GSK, we actually tried to do a trial with the GSK um, HER2 inhibitor lapatinib for HER2 mutations in other cancers. This was like back in 2005 or 2006. And it didn't work. Uh, and that's because of this. Interesting. So you've made a couple references to ARID1A. Th this sounds like it has uh, surfaced itself as a high priority project at Tango. Can you describe this lead program and what, what excites you about it now? Well, yeah, so first of all, it is an interesting gene to me because it's a common, very commonly mutated gene in cancers. We don't actually have a lead program on that um, at the moment. We are doing some screens, but uh, we, we at the moment don't haven't found anything. Uh, those screens are early on, so that's... Oh, okay, so the, the gene's interesting, but it hasn't, you know, you don't have new chemical matter aimed at that. Not yet. I just use it as an example because okay. it's a good example of cancers where there's not good treatment, it's a common lesion in those cancers, and it's common across multiple histologies, but the synthetic lethal pairs are not the same across the histologies. The other thing that occurs to me immediately is that, you know, you can get into very, very small patient populations here. Uh, does that, what, how does that factor into your thinking about which programs to advance? So that's a good question. You could, but I think, honestly, uh, there's so much out there that hasn't been done yet with tumor suppressor genes and also something we call unmarked oncogenes, and I can come back to that in a minute, that there's still low-hanging fruit for pretty big patient populations. So whether it's something like HEAP1 mutations that are 20% of lung adenocarcinoma or something like that, you know, I think we're not talking about tiny patient populations. We're actually talking about reasonably good-sized patient populations by most people's standards. Well, you said at the very start, uh, you talked about tumor suppressor, the BRCA1, couldn't really do anything about it, but, well, now we do see a way forward. How, what's the, uh, can you describe that rationale of how, how does one target a tumor suppressor gene via synthetic lethality? Well, like just like it's simple, but it's not right. You you do the experiment I just described, which is you think about what tumor suppressor gene do you want to try and find the synthetic lethal pair for, and in what histology, and you look for those synthetic lethal pairs. Now, going back to BRCA1, the first one out there is PARP, 
there's also Pole Q, which is the company called Repair, is working on that one. We have a different target that's a BRCA1-2 synthetic lethal pair that we haven't disclosed the target on, but we're in hit to lead with that looks like a really another good one. So I think that, you know, for each tumor suppressor gene, there's probably more than one synthetic lethal pair, even within a histology. And then you have to start applying the standard sort of drug discovery questions like, you know, can you drug it? How hard is it to drug? What else are its side effects going to be? Those kinds of things. Okay. So hit to lead. Is this your lead program? We have two programs that are in about the same stage. Um, we haven't disclosed the context of the other one. Um, and we're, we're going to start two more contexts, uh, two more drug discovery programs in the next three to four months. One of them is going to be um, in microsatellite unstable cancers where the mutations are the known common ones, MLH1, MSH2, uh, MLH6, MSH6, sorry. Um, and the other one is a combination with a RAS inhibitor. Uh, sorry, it's it's a combination with a MEK inhibitor in RAS mutant tumors. Are, are we talking about small molecules pretty much in every case? Okay, okay. So the, the path forward here, pretty straightforward. Hit to lead, lead optimization, in vivo tox. Um, have you said like anything about timelines where you think you might end up in the clinic? Yeah, we're hoping to be filing INDs on our first two programs in, in, at, toward the end of 2020 and in the clinic in 2021. Barbara, as I was getting ready to talk to you, I, uh, I do what reporters do, which is we look at the company website. <laughs> and, and, and I was really struck, I, I, you know, because, you know, you've got this kind of background, which I alluded to earlier, that could have led you to be in one of these big corner offices with wood paneling and, you know, walking around with a tweed jacket or something. And, and there you are. You, you, you are on the website. And uh, there's this whole team of people who look like they're having a lot of fun. They're all wearing white shirts and I think purple tennis shoes. And it's very startup-y. <laughs> what what, what's the story there? I love it. Well, that the pictures in the white shirts, I was actually the day we moved from Hurley Street, which was where we were for the first 18 months or so, uh, subleasing from Aditas. Uh, into our new space at 100 Binny. So the, we, we sort of, as a sort of company event, told everybody wear white shirts and jeans on Monday. And then we also um, had a contest to design the official shoe of Tango Therapeutics. And the winner was selected and made. So that shoe, the shoes everybody has on are the Tango sneakers from the Tango sneaker contest. Well, the purple, it all seems very consistent. That's part of your logo in your brand, I guess, so to, uh, so to speak. But now, I mean, I think we could, there could be some silliness here, but I, I actually, I think there's something interesting going on um, in a boom time like we're in. I mean, when I would have looked at a company's website at your stage of development, say five years ago, I think the website would have been more geared toward investors, as in, look at how how attractive we are for investment. And when I look at your website today, it looks to me more like it's geared toward employees. Like, look at what a great team we've got here and why you'd want to come work with us. Well, that's an interesting thing. You know, when we built the website, and I, I personally was pretty involved with that, what we really were, what was important to us was that it reflect us. 
uh, as a company and, and, and as a team. And what, what I think is my own personal philosophy, but I think it, you know, as a result probably permeates the company, which is that good, really good science and really important drugs will, will speak for themselves, right? Um, that what we want to do is explain to people what we do and do a good job of it. And that, that in itself is how we want to be seen, right? We're good scientists doing really important things for patients on a timeline that makes sense for investors. But it's about what we do. Okay, so and what you're saying is, doing it. so it isn't like this was intentional, like that you built the website in the, with that recruiting kind of mindset in it's mind. Actually, it's funny. I didn't really think of it until you said it. You're right. What? Are, who are the people that are going to look at this? People who want to work here are going to look at it. So that's that page. People who want to potentially partner with us from pharma or invest in us are going to want to understand a little bit about the science. So that's those pages and they want to know who we are. So those are those pages. But the feel of it, I think, I hope just reflects who we are. Well, certainly you're always going to have multiple audiences in mind uh, when, when you build a company website. I, I get that. Um, but it just... I, I've seen this with other companies too, uh, where I think uh, you know we're in a time when there's a lot of money out there that wants to invest in biotech, um, a tremendous amount of cool science uh, to invest in. And you, but when I talk to the VCs, you know I hear people you know, fret a little bit about um, you know talent being hard to come by, especially the kind that can run companies. That's true, and I didn't in any way mean to imply that that's not a big focus for us, that we, need, we work hard to recruit and retain the, the, t the best talent. Um, and the website can be a tool for that, so we wanted it to reflect who we were. But yeah, the website wasn't built with that express purpose or slant in mind. So what are some of these big lear learnings for you in startup land, in, in building a company? Um, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't you know, have a course on this in graduate school. I didn't, but I learned a lot at Third Rock, right? I, you know, I, I spent time, like a very intense time for almost three years, uh, both building a couple of companies with people who really do it well and watching a bunch of other companies getting built during that time. So I think that I had, I had the luxury that a lot of first-time CEOs don't have. Uh, and I certainly have friends around the world that are doing this now because it's, it's, I think, now much more common to find people from big pharma that have moved into to biotech roles. I just think that, I, in a way, I did have a course in this by spending that time that I spent at, at Third Rock. Um, what are my biggest learnings from here? I think, I know this sounds a little operational, but I would say so far my biggest learnings are that you have to kind of, it's different than building let me say it this way. It's different than making a, an organization that's already exists bigger, right? That's what I did at Novartis. I had an organization. It had a structure. It grew from, you know, 120 people to 400 people by the time I left. But the structure and what everybody was doing was largely fixed over time. The projects rolled through, but the organization was the same. In a startup, the organization has to morph, and it has to morph pretty quickly over time. Um, as you start to roll a pipeline out that didn't exist, right? So you're constantly adding on new functions and you kind of have to think about what's the right structure and how to manage that when there's 11 people as opposed to when there's 80 people. So I think just the dynamics of truly building a company as opposed to making an existing organization bigger are, are different. And I hadn't really thought through that. 
Well, a lot of those structures that you allude to were already in place, put there in many cases years ago, uh, often by a predecessor who may or may not even be at the company. Maybe people don't even know exactly why they set it up this way, uh, but it's sort of like, this is always the way we've done it, so we're just going to keep doing it that way. <laughs> you see that a lot. Sure, but it also made sense, right? There's a clinical group. There's a clinical operations group. There's a pharmacology group. There's a statistics group. That that was all made because the now, of course, at a big company, there's a pipeline that rolls through that, whereas, a, whereas here, we're both building the organization and building the pipeline at the same time. So it has... It has sort of different implications. Um, on the very positive side, I would say one of the things I love about this is for me, it's kind of the perfect mix of what I've done in the past, which is that it has all the sort of cool cutting edge science of being in academics without the headaches. And it has all the pragmatism of saying the reason we're getting up and doing this every morning is to do something important for patients of big pharma without the headaches of that. Um, and it's all in one place, right? I spent a lot of time flying all over the world uh, for GSK and Novartis, but now I'm sitting in my office looking through my glass doors, you know, at the entire company. And I can just go talk to anybody I want to in two seconds, which I love. Is that one of the ways you like to manage? Just walking around and talking to people, see what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you're still, you feel like you're, you're close to the science and and uh, and pursuing interesting questions. Well, all the while, um, you know, hopefully, getting from point A to B to C. Absolutely, and I also love it because it's just a spectacular team. I mean, I trust everybody out there to do their job better than I could do it. Right, so you know, for me, it's just a dream situation. Where do you think this will? Go. I mean, you're not the only company working on synthetic lethal combos. Um, and whenever, you know, there's like a good idea in pharma, a lot of people get organized very quickly to pursue it. Um, how do you see this field or this kind of subsector within oncology evolving over the next few years? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think even going back to CRISPR, you know, it's almost like Eventually, it'll be almost like PCR. It's becoming a basic research tool that does that's so versatile that it's it's hard. You know, even all the validation we do now depends. The target validation work really depends heavily on CRISPR. I, I hope that does happen. I would say we've talked to a lot of pharma companies over the last eighteen months, and I would say most of them are not looking to build this kind of a platform internally. They're looking to partner outside with with other companies that are doing it. And there's different ways to do it, and there's different contexts. So, you know, KSQ and Tango are taking pretty different approaches and will, I'm pretty sure, end up in very different target spaces. In the end, it'll only be good for patients if this is what happens and there's multiple new important drugs that come out of it. Now, for Tango as a company, I'm excited about the fact that we're one of the first, and I think we're, we really are good at it. And so I think that will hopefully be an advantage for us as a company but in the end, you know, it still ends up always being about why we do this. And I don't want somebody else to not do it. Well, there's a there's a Versant-backed company, I believe, in synthetic lethal discovery. I don't know if they're using a similar kind of platform for discovery as you guys. But back to KSQ, what would you say would be the big difference between your approach and theirs? 
what I understand about KSQ, which is only what's in the public domain, is that they're, first of all, they're using a different kind of CRISPR uh, approach. They use CRISPR-I and we use CRISPR cutting that may get you at different targets. They also have a heavy focus on uh, in vivo screening for T-cell targets for immuno-oncology. Um, so again, likely to end up in very different target space, but we don't know a lot about what they're doing. Well, there's definitely a market for anything that can assist uh, T cell therapies or um, the, the PD one, the checkpoints, uh, which which is different from what you're trying to do. Yes, but I do believe that this is really a huge target space, and that you know we sh- we we I believe that we are getting close to, and actually soon we'll have more targets than we know what to do with. And I think that's why I go back to saying that. It's just a big target space, and as people get good at this and understand how to do it and how to get at the combinations, and this is another important point, right, that it's going to take combinations of drugs to to cure solid tumors. Whether people like it or not, we don't get to decide that. It's just a fact. And I think thinking that there's any single-agent therapy out there for solid tumors is, is probably pretty naive. So even if we find the first synthetic lethal drugs or the first couple of synthetic lethal drugs are among those discovering the first couple, there's many more. And then there's how to combine them and what are the right combinations. There's this whole space, what I call unmarked oncogenes that we haven't even talked about. That's an example of important nodes in specific genetic contexts that aren't marked by mutation or amplification. So you can't find them by sequencing. That's an example like the CDK4-6 inhibitors in ER-positive breast cancer. Neither estrogen receptor nor uh, CDK4-6 are mutated. It was a hypothesis that that would be a good combination, but you can't t- find every combination in all cancers by, with hypothesis testing. So there's, a, there's just a ton of stuff that's still out there to be done here. Yeah, for a long, long time, it's been about what's the one target and the one drug for that target. Uh, and and now it seems like we're, I mean, we're in a, there, there's still a place for drugs like that, you know, Herceptin being an obvious uh, poster child for it. But, um, you know, we, we also at a very high conceptual level could be going towards some more combination therapies. And uh, a little bit like the antiviral story with HIV and hepatitis C, uh, multiple drugs. Every tumor that is, every cancer that is cured, that is curable in humans, and there are a number of them, are all cured by combination therapy, right? Whether it's Hodgkin's disease or testicular cancer or childhood leukemia require multiple combinations. And that goes way back to what Bob Weinberg you know, predicted 40 years ago that every cancer has somewhere between three and six important genetic lesions that need to be targeted to kill it. Well, I guess we sometimes forget about the combinations because it's sort of like standard backbone chemo along with the new thing. And remember, chemo is even combinations. All effective chemotherapy for solid tumors uh, is curative chemo is combinations. And so cancers are just too plastic and, and too mutated to ever think that we can get at them with single agents. CML is a completely different thing. CML has a single genetic lesion, and that's why a single drug can be curative in that setting. There's no solid tumors that look like that in humans. Yes, yes. You're, we're all well aware that people tried to replicate the Gleevec story in, in other tumors, and it's, it's just, if only it were that easy. Barbara, 
It's been a great pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks so much. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. If you're interested in sponsoring the show and getting your name out in front of biotech thought leaders, send me an email at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. See you next episode.